there have been millions of moments, big and small, on America's baseball fields. So what made a single ad-libbed moment into one of the most iconic in all sports history? We lost that story for almost a century, but Lou Gehrig's voice is back, and you'll hear it next. For the past two weeks, you've been reading about a bad break. Today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. When you look around, wouldn't you consider it privilege to associate yourself with such a fine-looking man as is standing in uniform in this ballpark today? That I might have been given a bad break, but I've got an awful lot to live for. Thank you. Hello, history lovers, and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. Now number one in podcasting, thanks to loyal listeners just like you. In this episode, our time machine travels back to the old Yankee Stadium. Once in our seats, we'll watch Major League Baseball's most triumphant and tragic slugger. Best-selling author Alan D. Gaff brings us Lou Gehrig, The Lost Memoir. Now at first, that title might sound like hyperbole. How could we really have lost the personal reflections of someone as famous, as written about, as beloved, as number four? Well, sometimes that happens in history. And boy, are we fortunate when an author like Mr. Gaff goes back and digs that up. He's not even a baseball author. He's a Civil War author who found this great gem, the kind of gem that every author dreams about. And because he found it, now we get to enjoy it. Garrick was just 24, that's 14 years before his untimely death, when his sports agent arranged for him to syndicate his life at bat in a nationwide newspaper column. It's by tapping into these that Lou Gehrig comes to life again, speaking to us fresh in the 21st century. Alan D. Gaff is president of Historical Investigations, a company specializing in historical research. He holds a master's degree in American history from Ball State, and his books have earned a proud pedigree of praise including awards of merit from the State Historical Society of Wisconsin, as well as spots as finalists for both the Distinguished Writing Award Army Historical Foundation and New Mexico and Arizona Book Award in Biography. You can visit our guest at alandgaff.com or on Twitter at alandgaff. That's Alan with one L, and the last name is G-A-F-F. Okay, now that we've bought our peanuts and Cracker Jacks, let's find our seats in the grandstand for Lou Gehrig, The Lost Memoir. I'm joined on the line by Alan D. Gaff, author of Lou Gehrig, The Lost Memoir. Thank you so much for making the time to play catch with me here on the History Author Show. Well, Dean, I'm glad to be with you today. Well, I saw the title of your book. I saw the cover. I saw the subhead, The Lost Memoir, and my reaction was probably not unique. I couldn't believe that a transcendent cultural icon like Lou Gehrig is the first one to have his player number retired. He's huge, larger than life. And he dies tragically, so people, of course, wanted to have a piece of you, wanted to keep you alive. you think they'd pour over his whole life and everything he'd ever produced, written, or said. And yet, somehow he left a lost memoir. I, I couldn't believe that that was the case, much less that it went undiscovered for nearly a century. So how did you come across this incredible cache of columns, especially since you're not even a baseball writer? You're not a guy who's in there looking at the old sports pages. Your focus is the Civil War. So how did it fall to you to be the one who digs this out of the archives? 
Well, I'll let you in on a little secret as far as historians go. Sometimes the best stuff you just stumble upon. <laughs> and that was the case here. I wrote a book that came out in 2005 called Blood in the Argonne on the Lost Battalion of World War One. One of the officers in the battalion was a Captain Leo Stromey from California. And he was wounded, went back to California as a hero. And as part of his uh, recognition was appointed a prohibition agent. He got involved in some illegal activity, was involved apparently in a plot to uh, overlook smuggling of liquor around the San Bernardino area. Hmm. So I thought, you know, maybe sometime in the future, this would make an interesting article, especially since one of the men he served with had been from West Virginia and had been caught moonshining. And his case was thrown out of court when he brought his distinguished service cross in and showed the judge. Wow. So I thought I could compare those two, maybe to tell a good story. Well, as I was going through the California newspapers researching Mr. Leo Stromey, um, I just stumbled upon Lou's memoir in the Oakland Tribune uh, in a column called Following the Babe. And it's like, huh, I recognize the name. I don't recognize anything else, but I thought, oh, okay, I'll check that out. So I guess the first thing I did was check the print volumes from the old copyright office files to see whether it had actually been registered with the copyright office. And although there was a copyright notification in the paper with the columns, it appeared to me from the print version that there was never a copyright issued. But to be sure, I requested a search by the copyright office, and it turned out to be the best $400 for a single page of paper I ever spent, <laughs> because they wrote back and said that after searching under Following the Babe, Lou Gehrig, the Oakland Tribune, and the Christie Walsh Syndicate, which was his agency um, that represented him at the time, none of them had ever registered Following the Babe. So I'm like, oh, this is really good. So I dropped the story about Leo Stromey right away <laughs> and started to do more research about Lou Gehrig and his following the babe columns. So that's where it all started. And you wrote me in an email. This is another thing that I guess people might guess when they see the lost memoir. Today, using a ghostwriter is expected for somebody who's in the public eye. And so people might assume, you say baseball people will even argue that, hey, he must have used a ghostwriter to write these columns. There's no way Lou Gehrig was sitting down there in the clubhouse and jotting things down. But you're convinced that Gehrig wrote the main portion of the memoir of the columns in the Oakland Tribune for himself. What leads you to that conclusion? Well, originally, when the columns started to appear, they were advertised as coming every day. Within a couple of weeks, he had cut back to three times a week. And within another couple of weeks, it had come to the point where it was scattered. Columns appeared out of order when they were numbered. And one of them just simply disappeared. So instead of the original 30 that were planned and promised, there were only 29. Now, if a ghostwriter had been involved with that, he would not have been paid until actually the publication was in the public domain. So the public was actually reading this. So I'm convinced that the main portion was written by Lou as he tried to do it himself because he told his agent and the newspaper that he would do that. And it was advertised as written by himself in the paper over and over again. But I think he found out that it wasn't quite as easy as he thought because by the time the World Series came around in 1927, his agent, Christy Walsh, had arranged for Ford Frick to help him with his columns because the World Series columns had to be timely. If they came a day late, they were worthless. So they had to be done on schedule which is why he needed to have a ghostwriter at that time. But during the main part of the publication of Following the Babe, I'm convinced that he did it himself, trying to keep up with what he'd promised, but finding out that he couldn't play baseball, take care of his mother, and be a writer at the same time. 
it's not as easy as he may have thought in the beginning. And yet the fact that he even wanted to do it, the fact that his agent approaches him, Christy Walsh, and he's a shy guy, he's modest, and I imagine he also is so dedicated to others is what comes across here in Lou Gehrig, The Lost Memoir. He needs to be approached in a certain way because a lot of players wouldn't want to do this or they would want the ghostwriter. And yet he cares about sharing these anecdotes. He cares about explaining what the game means to him. And he tells some stories in there that made me feel like I knew him beyond that moment, which was important to me to get to know him before he's just synonymous with the disease that took his life. The one thing that he writes that I wanted to highlight was he says, the boys used to call me fatty. And he says, quote, they used to throw the ball wide to me just to get a good laugh when I started to waddle after it. And reading that, even after all this time, you could feel that pain of being the young kid. I I know you spent four years in Little League and two years in the Pony League yourself. You know what that feels like, even if you weren't the fat kid, even if you were talented and went on to the major leagues. Nobody starts off that way instantly, being a great player, and you're as self-conscious as anything when you're a young kid. How many gems like that will readers uncover for the first time here that will help them get to know Lou Gehrig the way that you got to know him? Well, part of the problem for Lou Gehrig, he grew up, like you mentioned, being bullied by other kids. Back then, they didn't call it bullying. It was just part of growing up. Now it's bullying. But he was also handicapped by the fact that he didn't learn English until he went to school in kindergarten. So he had a lot to overcome, and he was always self-deprecating. There were a number of illustrations from the book. I could read you just a couple. Sure. Part of his problem was he wasn't a good fielder. He was never a really stellar fielder. And in his memoir, he writes, feet like mine don't shift easily. They're too big. And the fellows on the bench used to kid me a lot when I'd fall all over myself trying to play first base. But they were nice about it, too. Say, Lou, why don't you try catching, the babe said to me one day. With those dogs of yours, you could block an army at the plate. (laughs) So, you know, there he is admitting that he had faults and people made fun of him, but he took it good naturedly. And I think that's the way it was met by his fellow players. I'm smiling here while I'm listening. No one can see because it's radio, but a guy like that, you can't help but love in the clubhouse. You can't help but really respect and admire, which makes it all the more poignant when we see him standing there. He's he's frozen in time, right, on Lou Gehrig Day, standing there giving that speech that I played in the introduction. It's the 60,000 cheering fans, and I guess the manager, that need to prompt him to give that inspirational speech and It's not a Hall of Fame speech. For instance, Jerry Rice, I remember him saying apologetically, can you just uh, indulge me? Let me hear the cheer one more time when he gave his Hall of Fame speech in Canton, Ohio. Uh That's not what this is. He doesn't plan it to do this, Lou Gehrig, but they say you have to say something. And in those words, declaring himself the luckiest man, he praises his teammates, all those things. Even in that moment, when everyone's thinking of him, he's thinking of everybody else. How does this columnist that we meet in Lou Gehrig, The Lost Memoir, flush out that personality? Because this guy is he's a hero in the true sense of the word, and he deserves it. And now we you, you've given us sort of some documentation here for the historical record or uncovered documentation to shake and say, look, we, we got even more on his side. Here's what, here's what a great guy he was. Well, Gehrig always tried to avoid the spotlight. And at the same time, he always valued his fans, and tried to please them as much as he could. He was basically very shy. We would call him a loner now. He, he enjoyed walking by himself, uh, going to movies, even going on roller coasters by himself just <laughs> to be alone when he wasn't with his mother. He was never comfortable in a crowd. At one point, he was shopping with his wife and was noticed by some lady shoppers and the kids that were with them. And his response was to run into a department store restroom and hide. (laughs) Wow. He was that shy. Wow. That's tough. His relationship with his mom was very close. I'm sure he took a lot of teasing and ribbing from his teammates. Just as an example, 
when they would go to spring training in Florida, his mom would go along. And instead of hanging out with the other players, he and his mom would take long walks on the beach when they worked in practice. <laughs> Basically, in, in the offseason, almost all of his time was spent with his mother. As a matter of fact, one of the things that I put in, and I was surprised that Simon & Schuster allowed me to put it in, was his mother's recipe for pickled eels. <laughs> there was a big deal in the, in the New York press about his love for pickled eels and how the other Yankees learned that if they were in a slump, Lou could bring pickled eels to the team, they'd have a snack, and their hitting would improve. <laughs> so they got to the point where they were big fans of pickled eels, too. <laughs> so I thought it was only appropriate that I put in her recipe for pickled eels. Now, I will confess, I never tried them. They sound disgusting. <laughs> but at the time, apparently, they were a delicacy. <laughs> But that just shows how times change over the course of time. <laughs> you mentioned putting that recipe in, and it reminds me to let listeners know that there's some cool sections in your book. This isn't a book that you just you pick up, you start it, you, you just lay out all the columns for us in a row, and then we get to that 29th one, and the book ends with your thank yous. You include, for instance, a section titled Lou Gehrig's Tips for Watching a Baseball Game. My wife is Canadian, so one of the things we fell in love through was hockey. Because for me, as an American in New Jersey, it was always hard to find someone to go to a hockey game with, male or female. I'd spend the whole game explaining things like icing, <laughs> offside, and what it meant, and what a what a penalty shot was, what the penalty was. Where is that from? And do you have some other favorites in there, some little gems that you think fans would benefit from when they watch a game in 2020? His tips were published on June 2nd, 1940, in, in a number of newspapers. It was about 11 months after he retired from baseball. They were in an article by a columnist named Jack Schur, who in the article remembered that Lou talked about baseball as though he were still playing it, even though he'd been out for almost a year. And most of those tips still apply today. I mean, you should know the rules, first of all. You should read news about baseball and baseball reports so you you know what players are what what teams they play for what their capabilities are and you should also be able to visualize what the possibilities are before the ball is actually pitched but most importantly he said you need to watch the ball and not be distracted by other things going on on the ball field like the coaches on the coaching boxes or something going on in the grandstands, an outfielder doing something stupid, watch the ball because that's where the action is. But ironically in the tips, Lou does mention that the umpires are usually right. <laughs> but the irony here is Lou Gehrig had a long history of contesting calls and being thrown out of games. <laughs> he had a temper and he was not above throwing bats. When he got into baseball, he was an exceptional human being. He didn't smoke. He didn't drink. He didn't swear. But by the time his career was over, he would drink, he would swear, and he would cuss. <laughs> so he learned baseball. Baseball changed him. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the inside baseball. You're mentioning there about him being a guy who liked to spend time with his mother, wasn't out partying with the guys. You say it surprised you to see just how clear this demarcation was in the 1927 Yankees between the ones chasing booze and broads led by Babe Ruth. I guess you could say the Babe, booze and broads, it sound like they go together, hot dogs, uh, yell, cramming, cramming all the food, and he was a guy of such huge appetites. And then you have the more sedate and restrained guys, and of course you had Lou Gehrig in that group, it sounds like. Yeah, it was almost like there was a, a, a dividing line in the in the team, although they would play together well as a team on the ball field, when it came to social activities, booze and broads for the majority of the players were more interesting. You probably wouldn't be surprised that there were numerous divorces among the, the ball players in that group. And as far as uh, the more sedate players, you know, like I'd mentioned, Lou liked to be alone. Earl Combs was another one of those. He liked to read his Bible in his uh, hotel room. Herb Pennock was another one, the low-keyed guys. He was the pitcher who lived at Kennett Square, Pennsylvania, and raised hounds and foxes 
and so that he could ride to the foxes like the English gentry did. So a big split in the two factions, basically, within the Yankees in 1927. How did other players and also the fans on other teams, how did they feel about Lou Gehrig? Did they they embrace him, or did they catcall him, give him a hard time because they knew that he was so good? How did they react? I think everyone in the country liked Lou Gehrig. There was nothing about Lou that caused an uproar, except with occasional umpire. But the fans loved him everywhere. And it became obvious on Lou Gehrig Appreciation Day in 1939 when he was given gifts from other teams that had long been opponents, either in the World Series or uh, during the regular season. So he was held in high esteem by virtually everyone who recognized that he was an exceptional human being. You wrote me that you recently finished reading A Season in the Sun, The Rise of Mickey Mantle, and that that brought back memories of your being a Yankees fan in 1956 when you were the age of eight. How did you look back? I mean, at that point, obviously, Garrig has, has stopped playing. How did you look back on him, and how should we remember him? What kind of hero in an age when people were still learning to be baseball heroes and, in fact, learning to be superstars, be heroes at all, right? The term superstar didn't even come out until Elgin Baylor. I interviewed Bijan C. Bain, his book about Elgin Baylor, the first player called a superstar. You know, we don't have games televised every minute when, when he's a young kid, for example. So how does that apply? What kind of hero was he? And what does he tell us about how to carry celebrity today? So at the age of eight, I was like a lot of kids at the time. You know, the, the Yankees were the powerhouse team. Every kid likes to root for a winner. And with Mickey Mantle coming in as basically the replacement for Joe DiMaggio, who'd replace Gary, who'd replace Babe Ruth, it was just kind of like a, a genealogy section there. So that's where I guess I, I got my real interest in in baseball was watching baseball with my parents and my brothers on television. And I guess that's probably what inspired me to go out and play catch and, you know, play like what they used to call town lot with the neighborhood kids. And there were always a lot of kids around at the time. So we always had two teams, but I guess I got good enough that I could play four years in uh, little league and two years in pony league and wasn't terribly good but good enough. I was a, I was a good batter. I could hit for a high average, never hit many home runs. I think I only hit two home runs in my six year career, but I hit with power wherever I hit. So I was good in one aspect of the, of the ball game, but not a terribly good fielder. Sort of something I shared with Lou Gehrig. Do you have big feet? You figure your shoe size <laughs> is the same as him? <laughs> no, mine are only ten and a half. <laughs> yeah, so see, he would have envied your feet. There you go. <laughs> it's time for the seventh inning stretch. You're enjoying my conversation with Alan D. Gaff. He's the author of Lou Gehrig, The Lost Memoir. You can visit our guest at alandgaff.com or on Twitter at alandgaff. Publishers Weekly writes of the book, quote, Special mention is given to Gehrig's legacy. Even in his final days, he dedicated his life to trying to help others who were suffering from their own hardships. Gaff's volume is a fitting tribute to an inspiring baseball legend. We mentioned, or you mentioned, Gehrig's relationship with his mother and how he really does seem to care about the little fat kids and the poor schlubs and the ones with mothers home suffering from pneumonia, the kids without fathers, even though he runs into the bathroom at that point, even though he's shy, that doesn't mean that he doesn't care, that he doesn't, he doesn't appreciate his fans. In your acknowledgments, you jokingly call Gehrig your co-author, and that made me think of the really unique position that you're in here. You're helping Lou Gehrig to help others a century after his death. So how does that feel? How do you feel going forward with this book? Because this is a unique collaboration, I want to say, even though he doesn't know you're collaborating with him. You clearly felt the weight of history on you as you're tackling this project. Well, first of all, I'll confess that Lou Gehrig was the ideal (laughs) co-author. First of all, his part of the book was already done. 
so there was no schedule to meet on his part. We never had a single argument, and he was obviously more of a celebrity than myself to bring attention to the book. So a great, perfect partner. I mean, I'm thinking you must have felt pressure to do him justice. He was always concerned about his public image, the way he was perceived in the press and by the fans. Lou knew that a college education would have given him a chance at a better life than his immigrant parents ever had. Lou didn't want to leave Columbia, but he felt an obligation to support his family when his mother became disabled. He was really good at getting over his naivete, although at times he had a problem with that. I can read another excerpt from the book for you about how he was treated. He said, one of the greatest laughs I ever gave the boys occurred in Chicago in 1923. We were sitting around the hotel lobby one evening, punching the bag about this and that. I happened to be reading the sports page of one of the Chicago's papers. Who pitched for the Cubs today, Joe Dugan asked. I looked at my paper. Across the top was a headline which said, Cubs win. Bruins holds Pirates to one run. Why, I guess it was this guy Bruins, I said. They only got one run off of him. That just brought out the hilarity in the hotel lobby. And he said for two months, every time he came came into the clubhouse, somebody would say something. Hey, is Bruins pitching today? How's he doing? Well, do you think you'll lead the league? So, again, it was the camaraderie of the baseball team (laughs) with a combination of his innocence as well as his willing to take a joke, even if it was on himself. <laughs> yeah, he's telling a joke on himself. And retell it. You know, he doesn't have to retell that moment. And he would always say, the circumstances under which I quit college weren't pleasant, and I felt pretty badly about it. Heck, now it's the dream to get that contract, right? It's That's, that's a well-worn path. It's more valued than a college degree by probably everybody. I mean, there's a few people. I know Ray Rice at Rutgers, he promised his mother that he would go back and he was going to get his degree when he when he left early for the, the NFL. But today it would be, what are you talking about? You're going to be in Columbia. The Yankees offered you a contract? Go to the Yankees. And so that gives you an idea, not just how it was a different world, but also his feeling of commitment and how he doesn't want to let his mother down, how he struggles and he wants to do the right things for others, not not just for himself. He wants to play, I'm sure. He wants to be in school, but he wants to provide for her first and foremost, I guess. Yeah, exactly. He thought more of his mother than anything else. Towards the end of his memoir, he basically calls his mom his best pal. The relationship was that close. It was more than it was more than mother and son. It was actually a close bonded friendship. The one interesting thing about his father is basically the only time he mentions his father in his memoir is when he talks about him being sick and him being forced to leave college to support his mother. There's much more about his mother than there is about his father. His father survives. Uh, his father didn't pass away until after he was dead. I've mentioned in, in my essay that, uh, he ended up in a hospital for the insane in uh, New York, upper, upstate New York, I believe. But I was never able to determine whether it was dementia or, you know, something else. At that time, they just lumped everybody in the insane category and threw them at an institution. So I never really found out if there was anything to that or not. What was his father's business? He was, he was a metal worker. And in New York City, apparently, that was not a a trade that you went to five days a week. It was more sporadic. So he he was basically a part-time worker when he could find work. Anytime he wasn't working, he'd go to the Turnverein and drink beer and play pinochle with his friends. And he would always take Lou along. Uh, That's where Lou became interested in physical fitness because he'd play with the barbells and the dumbbells and the stretching machines as part of the physical culture that the Turnverein supported at the time. During the first years of his life, up until the time he he left college, his, his mother basically supported the family, with his father contributing part-time every once in a while whenever he could find work. And maybe part of the reason he also stayed away from the partying guys and the guys that were running around on the team, because 
I'm sure that that's another thing you pick up when you're a young kid. And if he loves his mother as much as clearly does and is as close, he wouldn't want to be the one that was out all night and his his wife going bar to bar looking for him. Yeah, I, I could imagine his mother checking his breath when he came back from the Turnverein with his dad just to make sure he yeah. hadn't fallen into evil ways. But Lou Gehrig changed dramatically after he got married. Uh, when he married Eleanor, she showed him how much he had missed. <laughs> and instead of eating pickled eels, his taste ran more towards Cajun lobster. <laughs> they, they would go to the opera. Uh, wow. They would go on uh, on travels. They, they would they would cruise the world. She opened up a whole new world for Lou Gehrig that he didn't even know existed until he got married and and found somebody that was more worldly and more outgoing and more outspoken than he was. That had to be a big change. The first time someone gives you lobster and you've been eating pickled eel, <laughs> that changed his taste. I'm glad he could afford the lobster. I, I would I would bet that he was probably the happiest after he was married. Up until the time he got sick, there were several years when it was probably the happiest time of his life. In Lou Gehrig, The Lost Memoir, we meet this guy as never before. It wasn't possible to know so much about what he was thinking. Previous books, people who wanted to write his life story didn't have these columns, and so neither did Hollywood when Gary Cooper starred in Pride of the Yankees. How does that film's portrayal stack up against the young man we meet in your book? Well, Samuel Goldwyn, the producer of Pride of the Yankees, said that baseball was just a backdrop for the story, which was completely opposite of Lou's life, which was all centered on baseball, exclusively baseball. There are elements of truth in the movie, but you can definitely see Eleanor's influence because she was part of the production team and part of the writing team for the movie. And it's clear from place to place where her bias against Lou's mom can show through if you know the true story. The movie was based on a story by one of Lou's biographers, Paul Gallico, who was a sports writer Basically, hero wisher blue. So it's not an unbiased portrayal. I don't think the movie portrayed him accurately. There was a problem because Gary Cooper, who played Lou, besides having a slight facial resemblance to Lou, didn't have the same body type. Gary Cooper was right-handed. Lou was left-handed. So it caused the need for some Hollywood magic to make Cooper appear as though he were actually batting left-handed. I guess I'm not sure about how accurate it is, but there are stories that the filmmakers reversed the number on his uniform and then reversed also the footage to show him actually converting from a right-handed hitter to a uh, left-handed hitter just because Hollywood could do it. Yeah, I guess that would be the easiest way to solve it. Well, it was it was a lot easier than trying to convince Cooper that he could hit left-handed yeah. <laughs> because they tried that and that didn't work for them. Damn. <laughs> you write at the top of Chapter 6 that there are two kinds of ball players. One is the fans' ball player. The other is the baseball player's baseball player. What kind is the man we meet in Lou Gehrig, The Lost Memoir? He was definitely the ball player's ball player. Everyone who played with him, played against him, had the utmost respect for Lou Gehrig as a man, as a ball player. There's no disputing the myriad of records that he established over the course of his career, even cut short as it was. They also respected him as an individual, the way he, he lived his life, the way he doted on his mother, even though they sometimes ridiculed it. They respected him immensely, and it was probably a case where he was the most beloved baseball player across all teams, both leagues, at the time of his death. He's synonymous today with the disease that killed him, and that's something that always sticks for me. Usually I try to push those questions towards the end of a conversation. If you have an assassinated president, say, and they're obscured their whole life, all their accomplishments, in the flash of that gunshot— the Lost Memoir introduces us to the Iron Horse over a decade before his diagnosis. 
He's only 24 at that point, still young enough to reflect on his childhood, those unathletic moments, but he also can look forward and, for instance, doubts the Hall of Fame. He's not sure he'll make it into the Hall of Fame and get voted in. He has his whole life ahead of him. He just doesn't know that it's short, so that's bittersweet for us. What struck you most about the player, Lou Gehrig, at that age? Well, I think what struck me the most was his humbleness and humility. He was amazed to find that he could make a living at baseball and also play ball with and against players he had idolized while he was growing up as a child. At one point, he mentions meeting Tris Speaker in the dugout, and he tells us he felt like a kid waiting to get a ball signed. <laughs> Although they were both on major league teams at the time, they were both doing quite well in their careers, but he just couldn't get over the fact that, wow, I idolized this guy, and here I am sitting next to him. Another thing that struck me was his determination to succeed at baseball and his work ethic that helped him to realize those goals. His talent wasn't God-given, much like Babe Ruth's was, which he squandered, as we all know. But Lou's talent was gained through hard work and determination. He spent literally thousands of hours working out in the gym, practicing his fielding, and learning new infield techniques. In my mind, having you know investigated him as as I have in depth, I believe in Lou's own mind, there was really no substitutes for excellence. Everything he did had to be the best. And when he couldn't attain that, he would be mad at himself and try harder the next time. You include a biographical essay. It's another one of those little nuggets in your book, Lou Gehrig, The Lost Memoir. It's not just a list of these columns. If people are thinking they can just go and, and look those up, well, why was it worthy of a book? It's much more than that. It has all these extras and the context that you give Lou Gehrig's life at this period of time. What do you hope that that essay delivers to readers as they reflect on Lou Gehrig's life? And maybe if they're a young baseball player today, they're reading this great from the 1920s speak directly to them. I imagine that if I was young and I was chubby and I loved the game, I would be saying, wow, Lou Gehrig was also fat. People made fun of him too. His, his feet he felt were too big. We all have insecurities and things that make us think. And unfortunately, other people tell us sometimes, hey, you'll never make it, kid. So what do you hope that they'll get out of that and out of your whole book? Well, first of all, my essay portion of the book is filled with numerous additional facts that haven't appeared in other biographies. The first new information appears in my first sentence, where I correctly identify the birthplace of Lou Gehrig. In the 1950s, his mother, the mayor of New York City, and other notables, of course, unveiled a plaque outside his birthplace. This information has never been discovered by other biographers, but I went with the source and figured that Lou Gehrig's mother would know exactly where she was when he was born. So <laughs> yeah. I gave her the benefit of the doubt there. there. There are also other biographies that end with Lou's death, but I think there's more to his life story than that. So I have an additional chapter detailing his impact on American life, especially on his impact on World War II. And since I do a lot of research in contemporary sources, like newspapers, there's a lot of local flavor and long forgotten incidents that were common knowledge in the 1920s, but are unknown to today's fans. And I love to uncover stuff like that. Yeah, it too. makes the players <laughs> human and relatable from the flamboyant Babe Ruth to the virtually silent Bob Musil to Earl Combs who would never shut his mouth. And where else can you read about John Grabowski, who could accurately spit tobacco juice through his catcher's mask? Or read about Joe Dugan, who would gamble away his entire World Series check every, every time he was in the series. Wow. I mean, th these are stories that really should be told, but have kind of slipped through the cracks over the years. So hopefully readers will get a positive impact of what life was like especially on the 1927 Yankees, the famous murderer's row, the beginning of the Bronx Bombers. It's especially important since you mentioned about never shutting up and about players that are talkative as opposed to ones like Lou Gehrig. It strikes me that today we see these sports icons all the time. 
And we see, you know, they have Twitter, they have Instagram, they're always talking, they're doing videos. We know almost too much about them, I would argue. It's nice to not know. It's nice to be able to go away from people or just have them focus on one thing. And that goes for actors or politicians. Look how long we spend now getting to know each and every candidate and going into every little bit of them and them answering everything online. And and it's all very out there. There's that old saying that no man is a hero to his valet. And I say it's made us all into valets. We're all with them all the time. We know everything about them. Here, these are things that Lou Gehrig might have tweeted himself if he had Twitter or might have put on Facebook. These are things that are a glimpse of him that we don't get from the image just of him playing the game. When I started this project, it was always Lou Gehrig this, Lou Gehrig that. Yeah. But by the time he ended, it was, it was just Lou I noticed that too, and I was going to mention it at one point. I didn't want to make you feel self-conscious that the I was going to say the man that you call Lou now, you've gotten to know him so well through the book, and I think that's how people will look at him is, is as Lou. You get to know him as a guy, and I think he probably would be pretty okay with that. It seems like he wouldn't have, he wouldn't have demand he wasn't a demand Mr. Garrig kind of guy. It no, doesn't seem like not at all. I, and I think that's one of the things that that people will take away from reading the book. I just think it's so important not to see his life distilled down to giving that speech and then the guy passes away and he's a tragic figure. I have a friend from middle school and she unfortunately has Lou Gehrig's disease. And I know in her life, she doesn't want it to be defined as just the disease. And that's so important in in your attitude that you have when you have a terminal disease, which unfortunately ALS is. Here, you give us back Lou Gehrig as a hero. You give us back him as a young man with his whole life ahead of him. Because whether you're Lou Gehrig, whether you're Alan D. Gaff, whether you're Dean Carianis, we don't know what tomorrow or the next 14 years is going to bring. And so I just thought that was really valuable. And I, I think that's a pretty good pitch for your book. Because I think meeting a young Lou Gehrig just seems like, gosh, I'd want to sit down with that guy and just hear about his life. One of our friends uh, got an advanced reader copy of the book. She knew basically nothing about baseball. (laughs) But being a good friend, she said she'd read it anyway because she likes to read. And when she finished, we talked with her and we asked her what she thought about it. And basically her comment was three times in our conversation. It's just delightful. That's nice. And it's, that very well sums it up. Yeah. That's what it is. It is a delightful look. But at this point in our history, it's like Lou Gehrig is sitting in your living room telling you his own story. Nowadays, in our age of divisiveness and partisanship, it's refreshing and comforting, actually, to hear from someone who had a gentle spirit and was genuinely kind, someone who felt lucky and basically grateful for life and appreciated the opportunities he had. At the risk of sounding trite, it's a genuine Horatio Alger story of someone going from humble beginnings to the the pinnacle of success through hard work and determination. So hopefully people will take that away from reading The Lost Memoir. We have time for one last at bat, and as regular listeners know, I like to look at the acknowledgments, the thank yous, and at the author behind the book. You and your wife, Maureen, recently celebrated your golden wedding anniversary. December 27th is the date, 2019, that was the 50th year. It's easy to overlook the role of an author's spouse, or maybe a spouse at all, of anybody who does a job that's pretty solitary. You're there in those archives. There, you're not. You're not really sitting there with Lou Gehrig, but you feel like you are. And for a spouse, that can be a little bit strange, right? You're spending your time with people who are long dead, and you have it all in your mind. And I'm sure you're pouring things out. I can tell already. You're you're a loquacious guy. I know that when you were in the post office, I'm sure you spent some time alone, like Lou Gehrig. But here you are. It's a few months later, and I wanted to give you the opportunity to discuss how your wife Maureen has supported you in your work over your long marriage. If there's a secret for those of us who are also writers or also aim to get to 50 years, because that sounds like a big number. My dad said that back during the slugger days of the Yankees in the 50s, 
he had an old man come into his dad's restaurant. Old man, he said. He was probably 40, right? 42. (laughs) And he said he'd been married 20 years. And my dad said, oh my gosh, 20 years is so long. So he always says, it's not my age that bothers me. But when people tell me I've been married for 60 years, I say, my gosh, that sounds like a long time to me. What's it like being the wife of a Civil War author who one day comes home and says, I'm writing a baseball book? Do you want her to talk or do you want me to talk? (laughs) Well, she's there. You can put her on. I don't mind. I just wanted to give you the chance to thank her. Go ahead. Well, one of the things that I always do every time I go for a presentation is to embarrass her, make her stand up, and acknowledge her (laughs) gift that has helped me get to where I am now. She doesn't like to do it because she's shy, kind of like Lou Gehrig, (laughs) but I force her to do it, and she's now to the point where she, okay, yeah, okay, fine, I'll do it, and she stands up, and people clap, and then I also tell people where she worked in the genealogy department of the second largest genealogy collection in the country, so whenever my presentation is over, there'll be two or three people come up to ask me questions, and there'll be a damn line to talk to her. Because they're more interested in what she's got to say than what I just told them. So in a way, I'm a little jealous of that. But she's been a partner from the very beginning. And I will confess that she's the toughest damn editor I've ever had. (laughs) We have actually spent as much as a half hour debating a word or a phrase. And it's useless on my part because I almost always give in and she wins. (laughs) Well, you don't get to argue on those points with words, right? As a good writer, I'm sure you know that. You, It's your job to be understood and choose a good word. You're fortunate in that you have someone there who you do love and loves you and wants to be the best. That's so valuable. Yeah, it, it's a perfect combination. One of the things that we do in our spare time is we work on jigsaw puzzles, thousand piece, of course, and we'll turn on some music and we'll just work on a puzzle and talk and Every once in a while, we'll see deer running through our backyard, and we'll see bluebirds. So we're enjoying our retirement. But I also have another partner now, my son, Don, who's actually Dr. Donald Gaff at the University of Northern Iowa. He and I have worked on editing three books together. And I always like to joke that, you know, fathers and sons usually go hunting, fishing, golfing. We don't do any of that. We do research and work on books together. <laughs> so we have another generation coming that'll plug the hole when uh, when we're gone. Do you tell me he threw you a nice uh, 50th anniversary party for you and your wife, Maureen. That, so that was sweet, too. It must have been fun. But you didn't do it on December 27th, but you celebrated. <laughs> no, the, <laughs> we did it on July 27th because our kids said, nobody's going to show up 27th of December. We'll do it in July. So they called it the 49.567th anniversary, (laughs) got a cake with that on it, and engraved invitations with that on it. So our kids are kind of smart asses, but I like that too. (laughs) I think they got some more of that from their dad than from their mother. (laughs) How did you pick that date anyway, the 27th of December, not the marriage month? I was in the Army at the time, and that was my Christmas leave. Uh And we almost didn't get married because... We didn't realize we had to get an exemption from a judge for a waiting period. So we caught the judge just before he left work that day at the courthouse so we could go ahead with our marriage. And then just to celebrate our marriage, our our son Don was born on our first anniversary. Oh, wow. So it's easy to remember his birthday. There you go. You have two things to remember. Well, it won't take you long to figure out, given the fact that Christmas is the 25th and Don's birthday is the 27th, exactly how many anniversaries we got to celebrate. (laughs) I believe the 50th was our first. (laughs) Well, Alan D. Gaff and your Boxing Day bride, Maureen. I know it's a day after Boxing Day, but that sounded really good. Who doesn't love alliteration? Boxing Day bride. (laughs) Your book, Lou Gehrig, The Lost Memoir, your friend was exactly right. It is delightful. I want to thank you for joining me and for uncovering these columns buried deep in the historical record. It's a unique opportunity to hear from an American legend. We can get to know Lou Gehrig right in our bedroom. Oops, sorry. We can get to know Lou Gehrig right in our living room, as you just said, or carry him with us anywhere we want. It really was a special book, is a special book. I hope that listeners will pick it up and check it out, even if they don't think they're a huge baseball fan, even if they're not worried about the Yankees, even if they don't like the Yankees. I hear that 
there's one or two people out there who don't like the Yankees. <laughs> but anyway, you can pick up the book no matter where you come from and enjoy just meeting a good guy because in his life, baseball was so important. He's identified with it, but he had so much more to give us. He's a hero that we can always look up to. And he may have big feet, but not feet of clay. I doubt you'll need it, but I do wish you good luck. I don't think readers will be able to resist this historical gem. Thanks so much for your time. And I did notice that your wife didn't want to go on the air, but tell her I I appreciate her giving you little cues there anyway, because I know that she helped you. It's like I spoke to both of you anyway. Well, thank you, Dean. And I appreciate the fact that you changed your wording so you didn't get to learn about Lou Gehrig in the bedroom. <laughs> I'm glad you cleaned that up. Well, yeah, like I said, you can carry him anywhere. Now I got now I got to leave that in a mistake. But <laughs> hey, we you can have him on your nightstand. That's what they used to say, right? What's what's the book on your nightstand? Well, Lou Gehrig, the Lost Memoir, is a great book to put on your nightstand. So I, I meant it that way. I was being clean. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Again, the book is Lou Gehrig, The Lost Memoir. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at the historyauthor.com page for this episode. By buying the book through us, you help keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. My sincere thanks to Alan D. Gaff for joining us and for recounting the bad break of baseball's Iron Man. Find him online at alandgaff.com or on Twitter at alandgaff. And while you're at it, let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at History Dean, Instagram at The History Author Show, or Facebook.com slash History Author. That's it for this installment of The History Author Show. I hope you join us for our next all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And if you're an iTunes subscriber please take a minute to leave us a review. Thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. Katie, Katie was baseball mad, had the fever and had it bad, just to root for the hometown through every two. Katie Blue, on the Saturday her young beau called to see if she'd like to go to see a show, but Miss Kate said no.